Welcome back to the SSI Executive Conversations podcast. Today we have a special episode as CEO and founder Darwin Schurig speaks on sustainable, profitable growth and KPIs for success and failure. Hello, this is Darwin, CEO and founder at SSI, and I'm excited to share this special podcast edition on creating sustainable, profitable growth, focusing on KPIs for success and failure. From an industry standpoint, being in business is hard. Everybody knows that uh, historically 30% of businesses fail in their first year, 50% of those businesses that make it through the first year are not around at year five and across all industries, 70% of businesses don't last 10 years. So being in business is hard, whether the discussion is around initial startup of a business, um, making it through that first two to five years or trying to scale a business for greater growth. So what our goal at SSI is certainly talent management strategies are important. And there's a variety of different types of strategies as I present at conferences that that companies can take. And I think understanding what makes the most sense in terms of internal, external, the combination, firm, contract, those are all vitally important. Uh, And then relevant to attraction, efficiency of process, and how all those tie in to retention rates and how those processes are related to annual voluntary turnover, which is 25% across all industries. So all of that is extremely important, but how we look at partnership and and look at these areas relevant to KPI all comes back to why companies succeed and fail. And there's typically five to eight that are why those companies succeed or fail. And so when we look at failure, uh, poor cash flow is always a potential problem, particularly in terms of raising capital. We do a lot in the, uh, you know, companies that are ABC funding and particularly this last 24 months, it's been uh, a bit of a challenge in terms of raising capital because of the past, some, some past investments that didn't work out, the economy is slowing, the rate being raised uh, by the Fed, a lot of different factors. Uh, Poor business planning, not understanding business concepts or entering the market. Poor pricing strategies, uh, certainly in the last uh, five to 10 years, even more so. And and as we move into the age of the metaverse, not valuing data and and analytics is a big part. Uh, Compliance issues. But three of the top reasons that we look at and try to help our partners with come back to uh, leadership, having the right or wrong leadership, how that ties into mission and vision, company alignment relevant to that leadership and growth, and then certainly the wrong talent. So on the flip end of that, in terms of all these data points on what makes a successful company, how do you get in that 30%, which anybody, any entrepreneur, that's the goal. And sometimes fail, you have to fail first before you're able to get some of the insights and understanding that you need to to, to prove and grow and then start another company that's successful, right? But what makes a company successful? Again, direction and leadership. Uh, leadership is top down. Having a clear mission statement. So I believe strongly that mission and vision has a lot to do with company alignment. And misalignment can be a killer when it comes to wasted resources, 
and, and timing and certainly when there's market fluctuations. So financial savvy, have to be quick to adapt. You look at what happened with the pandemic. I think there's a lot of data points there that are quite interesting. You see some companies that adapted in a very interesting way. Companies that were um, more focused in the auto industry that switched to making ventilators. Companies that had never been involved in diagnostics or PPE that switched to take advantage of that situation to then manufacture those things, which on from one angle is really innovative and, and, and smart. And then also there were a lot of examples of companies doing that and making money, but then not really understanding when that shift was going to change and then going out of business. So you have to be careful, obviously, how you adapt and have more than just a short-term strategy relevant to being able to, to adapt quickly. Uh, but the pandemic's obviously incredible, a lot of different examples of that. And through that disruption, a lot of positivity has come as well uh, in terms of the industry. But having empowered employees, another, uh, which to me speaks, making sure you bring on the right talent where the mission, personal mission, personal why matches the mission statement and having an uh, annual employee appreciation programs, career ladders, uh, vision, and then have to have an innovative product, right? That's going to last. Hiring talent is a challenge. It's always been a challenge. So a lot of different data points, but 46% of all new hires are purported to fail within 18 months. That's an astounding statistic. Only 11%, if you look at the data leadership IQ is shared over a lot of industries and data points, is that only 11% of hires were deemed failures because they didn't have the actual skill they were hired for due to technical reasons. The other 89% were listed as low emotional intelligence, not being coachable, poor temperament, so they don't get along well with others or work well in teams, or low motivation. So, you know, that's astounding. Again, how important is it to hire people that have those positive intangibles and also they care about the mission their personal why it matches up for when things get challenging so you have higher employee engagement and less wasted resources McKinsey and company stated 35 percent of all new hires fail within 12 months uh, additionally the center for creative leadership stated that one in five new hires are considered long-term successes so only 20 percent when you think about the cost relevant to onboarding, uh, certainly recruitment, but uh, training and how those are wasted when a hire does not end up working, that again is, is certainly extremely relevant and uh, a big number. When you look at HR and TA, so one of the surveys that we did through our, our partner at IU recently this year, uh, one of the questions was, do you have a consistent process for interviewing prospective candidates that's written down and otherwise documented. So do you have best practices there? And the responses from that significant uh, compilation of data was that 78% said, yes, we absolutely do. Now, interestingly, in the same survey, uh, they were asked what percentage of applicants go through your process, your, your organization's interview process as it's supposed to be relevant to that best practice and less than 20%, around 19% answered yes. So 
I mean, it's kind of like your design history file, right? Or your master validation plan. It cannot be a one-time document. It has to be a living document. And I think that's really important relevant to mission and vision as well. It has to be something that's a part that you live and it's not just lip service. 33% of those same responses, uh, of those same people in HR and TA at the high levels of leadership stated that retention of their top talent was their number one concern within their department this past year. So uh, over 30%, over a third said that was their number one concern. When you look at inefficiency in the process and the cost of mishires, I mean, Jack Welsh, uh, most people know his sort of, I, my perspective of somewhat famous statement that companies pay more money uh, essentially relevant to the cost of mishires than they do annual corporate taxes, which is a pretty big statement. Uh, the cost of mishires can be anywhere from three to four times the annual compensation to that candidate to all the way up to seven if it's an executive level and you look at opportunity cost and risk and all the factors that go into that. But an internal backfill, the average time to backfill across all industries is around 50 to 65 days, depending on the industry. The average time in talent, ac uh, talent access or HR related activities is about 150 man hours. And then the average cost per day to fill a mid-level role that doesn't have leadership responsibilities or direct reports is about $500 a day. The total cost in a perfect rehire scenario is still around $25,000 to $35,000. So turnover is brutal. And as I mentioned earlier, it, it, the average annual voluntary turnover across all industries where people are, are, are leaving, and a lot of times, from my experience and perspective, it's not typically the people that you want to leave. It, you know, somebody who's going to go on a PIP or is on a PIP, they oftentimes will stay as long as you let them. So 25% across all industries, a fourth of the talent walking out the door annually. Now, through an, a, another survey that was done that we looked at, 79% of those that fit into a voluntary turnover category cited the lack of employee appreciation programs as their number one reason for leaving. Uh, oftentimes, leadership, the direct leader, or inability to know where their opportunity to grow is are, are typically in the, in the top three. Um, in this case, employee appreciation, lack of it, was uh, the number one reason uh, relevant to annual voluntary turnover. Now, 76% of HR leaders, let's remember, we just talked about this relevant to the survey we did with IU, 76% of them said they don't fully utilize their current onboarding process. So when you think about people leaving uh, the cost of mishires and annual voluntary turnover, I think that's certainly a data point worth looking at in terms of how that affects efficiency, how that affects confidence, and um, somebody's ability to bring value relevant to how they integrate with the team and whether or not they feel supported during that onboarding process. When it comes to employee retention, uh, employees are four times more likely to leave due to poor leadership. So kind of referenced that uh, a, a minute ago. They are two times more likely, though, to leave due to lack of appreciation uh, or annual appreciation programs or feeling like they are valued in their role. 87% of HR leaders stated again that 
retention of top talent is their number one priority through this particular survey. But yet at the same time, they came back and stated uh, over a third of them that they lacked the time or the resources to actually do anything about their number one priority. So let's go into a specific example. We're going to use clinical trials, clinical research as our example on how important this is. And then you can certainly, you know, extrapolate or make the adjustment to your particular functional area, whether that's design quality or manufacturing, et cetera. But uh, in terms of clinical trials, if you look at stage three clinical trials, about 20% of those, uh, those trials fail. And when you look at the wasted money and resources, which are significant, you can't just look at that trial. You have to go back and look at preclinical exercises and investments and, and stage one, and stage two. So it is a huge amount of wasted dollars and time. But of the reasons why those trials fail, 70% are due to clinical efficacy. And the FDA showed, has shown and stated very clearly that some of those issues, so unskilled project managers or workers, uh, the person that is interacting with the FDA or tying into the design inputs and outputs of, of the trial and protocols, they failed to properly interpret FDA guidelines uh, or feedback or uh, changes or adjustments, teams that did not work together. Sometimes they just made the protocols for the trial too complex. Uh, and, you know, Tony Robbins states that complexity is, is the killer of execution. Uh, poor training and verification, again, comes back to talent. Ethical issues, having issues with the quality of the data. And then... Also, you know, misrepresenting uh, a, a drug's safety protocols. So those were some of the main reasons. But they essentially all come back to, to having the wrong talent or the wrong leadership or the wrong emotional or, or talent or obviously ethical kind of speaks for itself. So in terms of regulatory submission, 70% of 510Ks are not approved the first time. That's astounding. The average FTA uh, 510K submission to the FDA is about $37,000. So that's only fees and submission preparation. Certainly the opportunity cost, when you look at the P&L and you look at commercial projections to revenue, that always ties in. So it, it, it's significantly impactful in terms of accessing the market and the P&L. But most common reasons all come back to talent. Uh, using the wrong FDA templates, inconsistencies of data throughout the submission. So data that should be the same in different areas, but it's not. Uh, not following the 510K submission checklist, uh, inadequate clinical data within the application, and uh, multiple times using the wrong predicate device to prove substantial equivalence. So again, all comes back to the wrong talent. On quality, it's just an enormous example. But when you look at the re at recalls within the industry, the FDA, the average cost for a recall for, for a company is over $5 million. Annually, it's over $6 billion to the industry. And so what are the top reasons? Improper labeling, rushing testing, cutting corners, fraud or utilization of information that was false, that they, that they knew that. Poor design quality. Uh, relevant to the to, to the blueprint 
not using the device as it was approved for, for substantial equivalence. Uh, uh, not really interpreting or conversations, understanding of, of, of the F FDA's direction. Uh, poor software safety is a huge one, uh, particularly the last decade here. So again, it all comes back to the wrong talent. When you look at KPIs, and as I go into this, one thing I'm gonna, I'm gonna share real quickly, when you look at how hard executives in the C-suite and leadership works and the pressure there, uh, when you hire the wrong talent or you make vision, vision and you don't delineate between cultural fit and the technical skill to make sure that the personal why matches up to the mission so you have people that are able to engage and overcome problems, <laughs> the risk and the fines and the cost it certainly does not add to the executive team's workload and health, which is pretty strongly documented that uh, when it comes to health and uh, life, longevity, quality of life, that uh, executives tend to, tend to struggle there a little bit. So as we look at KPIs, what things should companies be looking at to determine where they can improve in these areas and understand best practices? So time to hire, uh, looking at tenure retention rates, certainly you've got to understand your, your, your annual voluntary turnover, but looking at how people are engaged and reviews in the first year and then year two and five uh, relevant to turnover, uh, delineate between that, that, those areas and obviously voluntary term, turnover versus terminations, because uh, certainly in terminations, you're going to learn how well you're, you're hiring for cultural fit and those areas in terms of their why and how you're evaluating emotional intelligence and uh, delineating between culture and the, the functional area, technical skill in any functional area. Because if somebody's a 12 out of 10, but they don't play well in the sandbox and they don't get along well with others, they don't fit the culture, you shouldn't hire them. It doesn't matter how good they are for the most part. Uh, if everybody loves them, they get along with everybody, but they don't have the right technical skill, then you really shouldn't hire them either. Uh, your cost to hire salary, what tools, equipment, you really need to understand, I think companies really need to understand this in the age of the metaverse and how you attract not being transactional, uh, the different software training, advertising around all those things. So some KPI averages for 2022, uh, in our industry, it's 51 days. Uh, average tenure is uh, 3.8 years across all industries, but it's only 2.1 in medical related industries. Uh, the challenge for talent and top talent is certainly not easy in a lot of the areas that we work in, and most likely that's not going to change. Average man hours spent hiring one candidate on average is 200 hours. Average cost of onboarding can be anywhere from ten to $28,000 in the first three months. That's across all industries. In the medical, it's uh, closer to 35 k Now, quick example on, on replacing. Again, we're going to keep our focus in, in this example in clinical trials, but to replace a clinic, a senior clinical trial manager to oversee a trial, it's on average 50 days to find a replacement and then 60 days to fully onboard. So 300 additional man hours in recruitment and training activity for that position. The average cost is about $15,000 just on recruitment activity. Now this is all for internal, not, not for utilizing an external partner and having to pay that fee. So the average increase in monthly overall cost to backfill that position for the next year is essentially $2,500 a month. 
to, to do that based on the additional cost that you're going to incur and then the fact that you're most likely going to have to pay higher uh, on the compensation depending on how long the person is there. $30,000 on training and onboarding. So you're looking at $35,000 in lost revenue or opportunity cost essentially. So for one senior, senior clinical trial manager backfill, the additional cost is about $80,000, could be up to $125,000, uh, depending on how long it takes to fill over a year. And um, the additional time loss about 125 days. That's if done internally. If you use an external recruiting firm, then obviously that's going to affect most companies try to fill themselves. And then when they're, if they're unable to do that, then go to an external firm. But then on average, the fee is going to be anywhere from thirty-five dollars to $60,000 for that role. Taking a look at some, some key challenges and lessons, because what we're taught, what we spoke about earlier, relevant to failed outcomes because of not having the right talent. So we're going to look at some lessons in regulatory and quality risk management. Uh, Phillips, which is you know a company I, I worked at Phillips Trust Baronics, so this was really uh, I was really sad to see you know some of the units that I was responsible for back in that time that over five million of these ventilators, um, auto PAP and CPAP units were recalled, and it was due to toxic foam ultimately being inhaled by these patients. Uh, the air was due to in inadequate testing of the foam, which led to poor machine manufacturing. But that recall has cost Phillips $730 million. That was in the first quarter alone of 2023. There were over 100,000 MDRs filed, and at that point, 346 deaths. The lawsuits have cost Phillips ten dollars to $250,000, depending on the case. So not only is it a horrible situation relevant, obviously the deaths and those families and the risk to patient outcomes, but in terms of the cost in wasted resources and morale and in your and in their value prop in the marketplace, the significant challenge and lesson there. Sage Therapeutics, um, a really neat company that is has a mission to help patients relevant to depression and some really important areas. And so they recently had failed clinical trials on their new drug application. It was the third failure in three years. So the biggest takeaway from that, we actually did a, uh, a video on, on this, on one of our social media posts uh, sometime in the last 60 days, but it was caused really by poor study design because they were allowing these MDD patients to self-administer um, their treatment, which is really not something that, that would, would typically make sense to allow somebody that has issues with uh, depression to do that. So from that situation and because of the, the study design that was ultimately determined as the, the biggest reason for the failure, Sage lost 40% of its stock value in a day. And the opportunity cost could be well over a billion dollars. Now, that is not good on several different levels, but I also look at it as a clinician in terms of the patients that are not going to benefit from that technology and improved outcomes during this time as well. I had mentioned CEO C-Suite Health earlier. Let's talk about that a little bit 
deep, uh, go into that a little bit deeper. S executives work on average 62 and a half hours a week. 79% of their weekend days, they, they end up working some. 70% of vacation days they work. They sleep an average of 6.9 hours a night. 30% of C-suite executives self-reported that they struggled with fatigue and poor mental health. Uh, 700, excuse me, 70% have considered quitting their job for an emotional reset, which I, I found that phenomenal. At, at the same time, thinking back, starting SSI in that first two years, and there's a lot of this that I can certainly relate to. And being a part of... Uh, Karen Posey's CEO masterclass conversation here recently on a couple of different of her webinars. I think it was, if I remember correctly, over 60% of, of executives and CEOs stating, you know, having feelings of, of loneliness and, and kind of being on an island. So all of this is really important to understand in terms of the people that you surround yourself with and making sure that you have people that it's not an echo chamber and that their personal why matches what you're trying to do as a company. Uh, CEO HealthCheck stated that almost 60% higher risk of having cardiac issues, 36% had high blood pressure issues, over 20% high cholesterol, and over 10% at risk of de developing diabetes. Uh, Stanford University Graduate School of Business did a study showing that on average, seven CEOs um, die each year from publicly traded companies, and over a quarter of them are due to heart attacks that, they, that were not expected. So obviously, there's a lot of pressure on the C-suite. Um, so I'm going to give a, a, a quick plug out to, to Karen. Uh, I referenced her earlier, but she's the founder and CEO of KP Strategies. Uh, great resource for those that are want to have a better support or understanding of having an, an actionable strategic plan, leveraging customer insights, what CEOs or C-suite leaders should be focused on uh, in terms of what they should be responsible for versus others, and creating sustainable, profitable growth by making sure that you have company alignment relevant to uh, financial plans. Another shout out here uh, uh, to Bernie Haffey. Um, he is one of our top downloaded podcasts that we've done for the SSI Executive Conversations. Uh, his book, High Performance Management Systems, uh, Cutting Through, is just a phenomenal book. And Bernie is such a proven commodity and such a strong resource. And again, focused on voice of the customer first. Uh, very similar, I think, at a high level to what Karen's perspective is, and certainly mine, that voice of the customer or the patient or the clinician has to be first and primary, secondly, followed by voice of the, the employee, creating a culture and best practices that are bringing the best value to the customer. And then lastly, focused, uh, the last voice being the voice of the stakeholder. Oftentimes companies do it the exact opposite. And I think they suffer from that. Uh, last shout out here in this case to my friend Mark Sellers of The Funnel Principle and uh, also has another great book on leadership and understanding aspects of that for efficiency. But there are so many scenarios of poor commercial launches. I, you know, he really made a big impact on me in my career in corporate America 
after I'd read the funnel principle and really understood some of the ways that I was looking at things possibly in the wrong way, but improving your value prop positioning, understanding the customer's thought process and, and uh, buying process versus sales or commercial activities, you know, checking off boxes. It's vitally important how you look at those things. So the C-suite knows that their P&L and what projections are coming are real versus, um, you know, pie in the sky or fantasy. So I think it is vitally important to delineate the interview process for cultural fit versus the technical fit. And it's not, it's not rocket science, but at the same time, it's not easy to do. And there's a process that has to be done to do it right. Uh, interview questions should be distinctly different in measuring skill versus functional fit. First of all, in terms of whatever the technical skill is in the functional area, and I'll use, uh, let's just say software developers as an, as an example. Somebody's doing algorithm development for software. If you're interviewing four or five software developers, there should be a, a, a test, a, a functional test where they actually have to do some algorithm. Uh, they have to meet a minimal technical skill that's graded. And through that interview process, there should be a consistent process to capture that information and then to be able to compare and contrast the talent. And it's amazing how many companies don't do that well. We had a, a partner that we've filled a lot of, helped bring a lot of people to over the last four years. We're working on a position in design quality and there was a really talented candidate that did not end up moving forward or going there. And part of the reason why the hiring manager felt like the candidate didn't have strong statistical analysis or statistical process controls. Well, there was no, this is a person that had a lot of experience in that area that was measurable. And so when that feedback was given, which they weren't even out, but they decided to remove themselves based on certain aspects of the process. Well, it wasn't even really discussed very much in the interview and there certainly was no functional test. So where, where did that perception come from? Well, if you don't have specific processes to measure, then you're more likely to look at emotions. Do they look like me, sound like me? How do I feel? And how well are you going to be able to do that consistently? So that's just in, and I'm talking about just measuring a functional skill. So delineating between culture and technical, you have to have questions that measure those areas of emotional intelligence, collaboration, and there's a, there's a format for doing that. You have to have a score process that is consistent. And then you really have to understand, I mean, it all begins with understanding what values do, do you want to attract? Um, if you are a cutthroat law firm, then those are probably a lot different than if you're running a, a charitable foundation, for example. And, and then certainly one of the minimal skills that are required. I think you have to be very clear on your mission statement, vision, your employee value prop, and your why. And that has to be incorporated in every aspect of your interview process. Ad advanced career ladders, I think, are vital. Many companies either don't have these or have some aspect of it, but it's sitting in a drawer and it's not really something that's lived or driven leadership down. So, however, by doing this, you can empower your employees, your stakeholders, uh, you're gonna decrease your annual voluntary turnover, you're gonna have higher retention rates, less wasted resources, and it, if it's done right, all your, 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 your clients should benefit. So it can be a multi multiple wins for the company, but it should be defined a specific roadmap on how 
to get ahead at the company, the ability to have vertical or horizontal growth within the company, depending on skills and what somebody wants to do. Um, and you have to have an actual tool and process and what that looks like at, at a, in the ladder that touches every level of the organization, exempt, non-exempt, technical. And the exciting thing about it is a lot of time turnover can be worse in the hourly positions. And this gives that area of your organization, they have a proactive understanding of how they can make more money and be successful, which is going to drive improved uh, profits. So benefits, you know, you attract better talent, world-class teams, you support your staff development. It's going to lower attrition rates. It's, it's been shown at companies that implement it to lower at 40 to 7%. That obviously saves time and cost relevant onboarding, training, and replacing positions, uh, increases productivity of the enterprise overall, and you're going to have more motivated uh, people as well. And people that are focused on how they can bring efficiency uh, to, to the company as the company grows. I would uh, recommend our webinar or podcast that we did with Jeff Brown in this particular area, but uh, having these established can really be the engine to drive a company's growth and help a company be in that 30% over 10 years of succeeding versus failing. Once it's put in place, um, it improves every aspect of the leader's ability to manage things uh, because the employees become more engaged. Once you have the system in place, it then drives your inputs through your people, your processes, and your system. And it helps you, I think, as well with your strategic plans the next two years, the next three years, the next five years from a strategy standpoint as well. So highly recommend that webinar or, or podcast. And stay tuned. We're going to have a webinar that will be a panelist-driven webinar in the same category in 2024. I hope that this podcast brought you some value and maybe thinking about some areas where you can make adjustments to improve how you attract, how you evaluate your processes uh, to create real best practices. If you would like to understand better how you stack up against the industry, you can uh, reach out to us. Uh, you can go to our website at uh, www.shortsolutions.com. There's a free survey where you can see where you compare in areas like annual voluntary turnover average offer acceptance rate, um, retention rates, et cetera. Additionally, if you'd like to have a consultation to look at how you can um, evaluate, how you attract talent, how your interview process is set up, do you, do you have a, a process in place to delineate between the cultural fit and the, and the technical skill in any functional area? We can show you examples of how to do that, uh, areas to improve efficiency in terms of onboarding, so if there's any aspects of this that might be worth taking a look at, we'd be happy to help in any, in any way. So I hope this podcast brought you value. Uh, the industry, we're all better together. And if there's, we can help any company, whether they're a partner of ours or not, understand why companies succeed and fail and help them to become more efficient. And then that's better for their employees. That's better for the ecosystem. And at the end of the day, that's better for all of us. So I appreciate your time. I hope this brought value and I hope you have a great day. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the SSI Executive Conversations podcast. If you'd like to see more, please follow us on LinkedIn and subscribe to our YouTube and RSS. Visit SureXSolutions.com to learn more about SSI and receive a complimentary consultation.